This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact, the UCD Business School official podcast. And we have finally scraped, ran, crawled, I suppose, to the end of the year. It's been a fascinating year, as we say, but every year. But this was kind of a strange year. And we're going to dissect it in a few minutes with two of my guests. But first of all, just to thank everyone for, for staying along with us during the year. As you know, these podcasts were originally launched at the height or at the start of the opening of the COVID pandemic. We've decided to keep them going because we've had such good reaction from you, the listener. We've covered a whole range of topics, some from people on faculty here at UCD, others from external guests. And I think those two groupings do mesh reasonably well together. Now, what we always do in December, not surprisingly, is look at the year that's just gone by. And we're heading towards that in the last fortnight as this time of recording. And it's been a peculiar year. Obviously, we've started the year with COVID-19. People kind of don't remember now, but actually there were COVID restrictions as recently as January. Um, I think hotels, bars and restaurants were still on an eight o'clock closing time. And we've ended the year still talking about infectious diseases, but we just replaced COVID with strep A. And of course, we had our friend monkeypox over the summer, which is somewhere out there floating around in the ether as well. So it's been a strange year from a public health point of view, but we're mainly all about finance and business. And let me introduce you to my two guests who are going to walk us through 2022, which was a remarkable, but as I said, strange and at times slightly surreal year. Donald O'Donovan is the business editor of the Irish Independent. Donald has partaken in this ritual a few times before. And a new guest, Elaine Burke, who is the editor of Silicon Republic and a recent recipient of a Smurfit Business School Journalism Award as well. So well done to Elaine. So she's at least had a good year, whatever about the rest of us. So you're both very welcome along. Hello, Donald, and hello, Elaine. Hello, Emmett, how are you? Very well, cold, and watching my fuel bills go up. But apart from that, we're okay. Elaine, you're very welcome along as well. Yeah, I'm also keeping cosy. <laughs> yes. Now, our listeners can't uh, see either of our guests, but one of them has a very thick jumper on, the other one has a very thick woolly jacket on, I think, or hoodie, I'd call it. So they're well insulated, because they're going to have to sit still for half an hour and talk to me about a whole range of topics. So let's get underway. As I said... We've got so much to get in. We pick particular topics, not because they're necessarily the most important thing that happened in the year. Some were picked for interest. Some are personal bias, because I'd love to hear our guests talk about them. Others because they are genuinely globally significant economically and financially. And some because we just want to talk about some certain quirky little things that happened during 2022. So please, there is no huge, immense science behind this list. And we won't get to all of them either. So it'll depend on which uh, time my guests want to spend on each one. So we're going to take it as a leisurely stroll, I think, is how we would best describe it. So, folks, as I said, let's kick off with we had one big crisis, which was COVID. Um, it kind of is still out there. There's still cases. There is still, unfortunately, some deaths as well. Nobody wears masks anymore, at least from what I witnessed on public transport. But it has kind of fallen into the background um, only to be replaced by other things. But in February and March, a big global crisis in Ukraine, almost like a plane landing as one took off, another one landed in terms of Ukraine. And a lot of people's reaction was like, we've just got out of COVID and now this, our energy prices are going up. Terrible scenes uh, uh, from the battlefield in Ukraine. So, so Donald, if I come to you first, I mean, what did you make of that switch over? It seemed we kind of had said goodbye to one crisis and had another one on our television screens. 
Yeah, the term of the year is poly crisis, isn't it? I suppose what's particularly interesting at the moment is what we learned from crisis to crisis, and and COVID is a health crisis, and 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 Ukraine's a war, so they're not in a way business stories, and they have but they have huge implications. Both had huge implications for the economy, and I think in both cases, what's interesting certainly for some of my age, is, is the extent to which it is now accepted and normal that the government would intervene in cases like that, that government inter- intervention is kind of the default position um, to ride out any kind of an, an economic shock. Certainly wasn't the case in 2008. Might have been the case historically, kind of pre-1970s, wasn't the case in 2008. Very much the case now. I think the expectation in a shock like COVID or now like the energy bills crisis that we've had as a fallout from the war in Ukraine is that the government will intervene. And the government has intervened um, in Ireland, but, but generally across across the European Union, across the US, partly because they have the capacity to, but also because I think there's a, there's an expectation that they will. That's an interesting facet of of this kind of idea of polycrisis, of, of lurching from crisis to crisis. There being, to some extent, the effects of those crises are being evened out or leveled out or, or carried um, by taxpayers. Now, Elaine, well, how would you assess the mood of everyone here in Ireland that this year comes to an end? Obviously, the mood is grim at the moment because of the weather. But looking at the year overall, I mean, just from my own personal point of view and just talking to people around the place, how would you assess the, the kind of the mood of the year that's just gone by? Oh, that is uh, quite a question. But I would say um, because we're heading into Christmas as, as we're talking now and it looks like it's going to be possibly a healthier Christmas than 2020, 2021, I think that has elevated moods somewhat to actually end it with those kind of social gatherings that we've been used to pre-COVID. The fact that those things have come back, I think are going to help people. But obviously, Christmas is also very costly and, and genuinely the sentiment, whether you're in business or just at home, is all about costs at the moment. And it looks like cost cutting measures are going to continue well into the new year. And I suppose people are probably bracing themselves for what Q1 2023 is going to bring because so far there's been a crisis in that period uh, for the last number of years. And uh, I'd say there's a lot of trepidation there, but it does look like we're heading into uh, a year that's going to be about tighter budgets and um, just trying to keep on keeping on, really. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure, Dolan, in your own pages, this whole idea of belt tightening, you know, we're going back almost to the rip-off Republic era of the Celtic Tiger end as well. It's all about cost. It's all about price. I mean, I'm sure you've even had to mould and shape your own coverage in the independent to reflect this bigger theme. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the interesting things that will have to play out in the first quarter of next year of, of 2023 is there's a sense that the, there's a dam holding back maybe a level of insolvencies, a, a level of um, uh, bankruptcies because of all that money that's sort of been put directly into households and, and directly into businesses over the last three years. That obviously can't go on forever. And almost if there's no new crisis, then that that flow of money from the state into households and businesses is going to is going to is going to stop or certainly is going to slow down very significantly. And there are a lot of businesses that are that are maybe past the point of of, of viability, but haven't gone out of business yet. We don't know what's going to wash through there. There's a lot of tax bills that are going to have to be paid that have maybe been carried through COVID. There are other businesses, and you see this all the time. Um, and, and, you know where where they're so busy that they can't get enough staff. Uh, Maybe they're having to reduce hours, which is affecting turnover, which is affecting margin. Um, and and so there's this kind of uh, very sort of weird dynamic in the in the SME economy in Ireland, where there are some businesses that are probably not viable, um, that are, are kind of zombie businesses that have been made, able to, to 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 stay in business because of various supports. Uh, there are other businesses that are maybe viable but don't have enough staff and and those staff are maybe working in zombie businesses and and that the rubber's going to hit the road at some point on that and that's probably likely to be in the first part of next year 
um, particularly if there isn't some fresh con- crisis it, it, that, that, that that's going to sort of disrupt that dynamic from happening. Now, Elaine, um, pick it up on what Donald's saying there. We, we don't really know whether we'll be officially in a recession next year. So there's a slight tentative feeling in the air. And you're talking to a lot of businesses and tech companies, startups and so on. I mean, are they all a bit nervous as Donald has sketched it out there? Or is it just, look, get on with stuff and what will be will be? What's the sort of mood among kind of companies that are in a kind of a growth phase? I think certainly in the tech world, uh, the word correction is what's used most commonly to describe what's happening there in that through COVID, a lot of tech businesses actually did very well, did better than sustaining their business. They actually grew their businesses. And even though there was a narrative among leadership that obviously this wasn't sustainable, this was due to a crisis and people having to move to online services because of that. And we saw the growth and even like a company like Zoom became a household name practically overnight. So it's a share price skyrocket, um, but has, you know, started to peter out on that growth now since and getting to more stable level level of growth, just as one example. But I think um, those companies, even though they knew that this was a crisis uh, level of growth, they they still seem to grow their teams around that crisis level of growth and are now having to reckon with that. Um, And that's just one version of what's happening in tech. There's other versions or Twitter layoffs were for different reasons. Facebook layoffs are probably for different reasons as well, because the growth of that company is at a much bigger scale. Um, so what that has meant for smaller startups and stuff like that is that if they're in a stable position and hiring, there's a lot of great tech talent out there that has experience with multinationals um, that they can try and scoop up. And some of them are certainly trying to capitalize on that. But for others, it does mean that investment is going to be a lot tighter. And for the last number of years, investment in early stage in particular and seed stage funding, where you're really just trying to get an idea off the ground, that could be quite novel and quite disruptive and hard to um, prove and pitch to investors that's going to continue to be tight for them, it looks like. So um, it's really the scale-ups that will probably continue to reap investment once they have like a proven uh, model that they can pitch to investors. And early stage and seed is probably set to continue to to struggle to garner that investment. Unless you have something that's really interesting in health tech or AI, there are two areas that are certainly continuing to see great, great levels of investment. One dynamic I think you'll see there as well is the other kind of headwind that's hit tech is the cost of money. So, you know, money was basically a commodity. Anyone could get it for the last um, certainly five or six years. And and for the last three or four years in tech, anyone almost anyone could get, get their hands on money. Um, the price of money is really going up a lot and has gone up a lot. Access to capital is now becoming a bit more of a premium. And that means just that investment necessarily has to slow down. Uh, so what might be an interesting dynamic, you'll see traditional banks, which are going to have excess capital next year, are maybe better funded than than than, than maybe the VC in infrastructure in, in 2023, 2024. And you'll see that, I think, with uh, medtech as well, where you, pharma, traditional industrial players are maybe better capitalized than the, the kind of the startup infrastructure has been. And, and that will start to shift, I think, where investment gets made, what types of investment get made. Do you think we're officially going to go into a recession next year? I hate to put that definitive question to you. But. I don't think we will in Ireland, certainly. Um, um, it, it might feel like a recession, though, because we have a growing population. We have new people entering the workforce every year. So even if we don't go into recession, if you don't have new jobs being being generated and, and new wealth being generated all the time, effectively, you're still kind of chasing population growth. So I think it'll feel it certainly won't feel as good as it as it has done in recent years. Not that it's felt great, you know. I mean, it's the, been the oddest boom of all time, if you if you like, uh, during COVID and during the kind of the the, the last couple of years. It 
feels like the oddest recession of all time. Even we were not technically in a recession, but we're, it feels very close. But on the same, at the same time, you look at consumer spending, consumer saving, you look at house prices, all those sort of things don't feel recessionary as data points, but the mood feels quite recessionary. Yeah, we're in, in a, a mood recession more than a, an economic one. It's an interesting idea, right? One, one of the things that maybe will exacerbate all this is supply chain problems, just getting goods and people around the place. And a lot of us, we hear about supply chain, but as long as the Amazon delivery person comes to the door, we don't really see it. Like it's not on our daily lives. But when we can't get ourselves around, we kind of tend to go, whoa, hang on a second now. This is, this is getting serious now, right? And we did have that issue over the summer. As Elaine says, the social occasions have come back. And then a lot of people, individuals and families went, OK, OK, I've been staycationing. I've been doing all this sort of COVID stuff. And now I'm going to spread my wings and go to the airport and head off to sunnier climes. But Elaine, they were hit by an incredible snarl up, I suppose, is probably a polite way of putting it. And we kind of forget now how extreme it was at the time and the length of the queues and some of the pictures of passengers standing outside the actual terminal building and the whole Dublin airport thing and and again it's bubbling away a little bit this uh, December because there's some flights have been disrupted because of snow and de-icing and so on but this was kind of the first time for a lot of ordinary people the manifestation of these sort of uh, supply chain or physical constraints coming into play and it was a bit of a shock to the system wasn't it? Yeah it's been a bit of the theme of the year the great comeback that no one was prepared for Um, and, and that's the issue in supply as well so like people are coming back to uh, their previous way of life in force. So maybe trying to take two years worth of holidays in the space of a few months as soon as things opened up, just in case they closed again. Um, And it just seems that uh, in the case of Dublin Airport, there was a lack of preparedness there because they were working in a situation where they need to vet people before they take them on for work. And they had uh, let some people go, furloughed some people. And uh, by the time uh, the airports were opened up, air traffic had opened up and uh, people were going on holidays again, they couldn't quickly rehire the people that they needed. And they reached out to people who they'd let go, who basically said, no thanks, uh, to coming back, which is, it's a lesson in how to deal with the crisis and knowing that that crisis is going to end at some point and you might need to have a recovery plan in place as well to get things moving quickly. And and then there was also uh, Aer Lingus suffered an IT systems outage, which was something that was quite interesting from our line of work and our coverage because that was a, sh- a showing of a vulnerability in their case. The, the fact that they weren't prepared to work tech-free is quite a lesson as well. There was no kind of continuity in place there. And that's something that businesses really need to think of in terms of the, the number of crises that we've come across recently. And like literally anything can happen and you might need to pivot your business overnight. And we did that with COVID, but a lot of businesses having to suddenly figure out remote working overnight. And if you had never explored that area in advance, you're on the back foot there. And uh, I think what happened with Aer Lingus that day when they had no capability to process uh, uh, check-ins and things like that manually, there was no system to enable that. Just goes to show that you need to have those kind of contingencies in place. Yeah, I mean, Donald, that, that's definitely true. You know, we, we saw companies kind of, their, their vulnerability exposed, obviously at the HSE hacking as well uh, before that. So things that you just take for granted, you switch on your computer, you're allowed to go to the airport on a business trip, all these things were kind of stripped away. And, and also one of these things that's a real personal bugbear when the Dublin airport thing broke out, everyone said, ah, but it's also happening in Heathrow and it's also happening in Gatwick. But I don't care about Heathrow and Gatwick unless I'm flying there. So we have this ten- tendency, public relations defence now, which is like, we have a problem. 
but so do others, so that's okay then. Well, why can't we be the outlier and not have these problems? So we tend to fall back on these comparatives to say, a bit like when we had the banking crisis, oh, well, other banks are in trouble too, you know. So it's, sometimes it's, a, it's better that we, we, we concentrate on the problem in Ireland and say, why can't we do better? But nevertheless, there's no point in blaming one person in this. So Dublin Airport, what did you see there? Or what was your take on, on that? Was it just a once-off or... There was a good comparison to, to, to the DAA situation in Ryanair in, in terms of, you know, Ryanair had kept their staff. Um, they'd obviously furloughed staff and, and they'd reduced hours. And, 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 you know, it was not an easy thing to do to keep their staff. But they had kept their staff. Interesting that because Ryanair is a private company. Um, and so that they had the capacity to, to rebound um, uh, once the, the, the medical, the health, public health situation changed. The DAA had not kept their staff and there was no great reason for that. I mean, they, were, they were a state body. They had access to COVID supports and wage supports and all sorts of other things. There wasn't a good reason why they reduced their operational capacity during COVID. They say they were losing such dramatic amounts of money that they had to do something. That was my memory of their rationale. Yes, yeah, but that was true of everyone, and and ultimately they had the state standing behind them. So you know, it, it, somebody took a decision to reduce that capacity, um, and 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 for whatever reason, and 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 I guess historically they've had high labour costs and things at, at at the airport, and that may have been part of the rationale. Um, but what it left them with was an inability to bounce back, um, because they had reduced their capacity for what was ultimately always going to be a temporary situation, whether it lasted now for 12 weeks as initially kind of um, floated or for two, two, two and a half years. Ultimately, when they came back, they weren't able to come back. And, and that, that is a lesson, I think, for all managers. Yeah. And also, once Michal Martin stood up in January and lifted the restrictions, you did not need to be a Nobel Prize winning scientist to know there's going to be huge pent up demand flowing. Particularly in a situation where we knew that, that households had money and loads of kind of desire to travel. So we knew, everyone knew that the airports were going to be busy. Now, let's let, because they probably don't want to talk about it anymore, the Dublin Airport Authority. So let's, let's help them move on slightly to what's happening in the financial sector. Um, and the reason I want to focus on that one is we have had changes in Irish banking. Francesca McDonough, who was, uh, I think it's fair to say, a high-profile CEO um, of Bank of Ireland. She departed off to a job in Europe. Bonuses were restored only recent weeks by Pascal Donoghue, uh, at modest amounts initially at least. And the state has been selling down its stakes in the various banks. Bank of Ireland has slipped away completely into the private sector and AIB, much more slowly, is moving in that direction and permanent TSB is a, a good bit further back. But certainly there is great change afoot. Donna, what do you read into all of this uh, banking change? I mean, it, like if you're an Irish bank at the moment, life is good in the sense that you've virtually no competition, right? All the uh, overseas lenders are leaving, KBC and Ulster. You're getting your bonuses restored, admittedly modestly. You're getting your interest rates risen or lifted up by the ECB. So your margins and loans are increasing you're pretty much a duopoly between Bank of Ireland and AIB with permanent TSB kind of tacked on as a third player. I mean, pretty much everything is in your favour. If you're a bank manager now in Ireland for the next year, next year and a half, two years, you could, you, could, you could sit back on your laurels and the money will roll in. So your, your interest rate environment has shifted dramatically in favour of the bank. Um, they're going to be able to charge a lot more money for the same loan, you know, for the, with the same operational costs and all that sort of stuff. That's much slower to pass through to savers. So your, your, your cost of funding isn't rising as, as quickly or as dramatically. Um, so you, you sort of, your, your margin is just naturally inflating passively. You don't have to do anything. Uh, your big competitors are leaving the market. Ulster Bank ha, ha, is effectively gone. As a as a competitor for commercial lending, for SME lending, for mortgage lending, for personal loans and credit cards, KBC the same thing. Exit of the market has a kind of 
competitive mortgage lender. And at the same time, you're seeing the non-banks who were really setting pricing in the mortgage market and, and, and other parts of the of the SME market. That, so uh, the likes of Finance Ireland and Avant and, and other non-bank uh, uh, Dilusk lenders who had access during this period of really excess um, uh, money of the, the last couple of years, they had access on the bond markets to to cash, and they were able to lend that very cheaply to consumers for mortgages and to, to businesses for uh, for business loans. Their cost of funding has risen dramatically faster than the bank's cost of funding, so they're just not competitive now. So, you, so you're saying the hold of the three main banks is actually going to tighten even further, cost potentially in terms of market share. That the big, like, if you're a bank manager now, for the next two years, your big question is, what am I going to do with all this money? It's not, you know, how am I going to generate money? It's not, uh, you know, where am I going to find customers? You're shooting fish in a barrel in terms of customers. Uh, you're going to have more money than you know what to do with. And that is the it's the kind of the problem of plenty as opposed to anything else. It'll be interesting to see what they do because AAB has already bought um, Good Buddy. Bank of Ireland has bought Davy, KBC and Ulster Bank's assets are being gobbled up. So there's not much capacity for expansion so, uh, within the Irish market. Do you have any insight? And you're, you're obviously on the, the front line of covering this. Do you have any insight into why the government didn't devise a situation where a new bank would be was brought in to take up some of those assets that the levers are... Like, was that not an absolutely golden opportunity to bring in a big European bank, give them some of these loan books and introduce them into the Irish market? Well, I think the, the fact that you had, you had two banks leaving the market, two foreign-owned banks, Ulster Bank and KBC, leaving the market, you know, that showed how unattractive it was to enter for a new entrant. Irish banks have adapted to the kind of capital rules and the, and the regulatory regime here. Other international banks haven't. So... That, just the timing there, I think, didn't work. Um, if 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 a foreign bank was going to enter, then two foreign banks would have stayed. Yeah, I suppose the optics were bad in the sense that you were essentially saying these are two dominant banks, and so let's make them even more dominant. Like, uh, but as you're saying, it was just uh, the the events were were not right. That the the matters were not lined up. Okay, well, not 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 a lot of job losses or slowdown in the Irish banks at the moment. There has been previously, but where there has been a slowdown is in our our very valuable tech cluster that we've assembled over decades here in Ireland. Elaine, you've been um, documenting and chronicling this stuff for for the last few months uh, and beyond. I mean, we've got a whole range of job losses. We've had Twitter, we've had Meta, we've had Intel, we've had names that we would never really expect to see job losses from at all. Um, I know Twitter takes up a lot of column inches. I'm always a bit nervous of that because it's not actually that huge a company uh, in Ireland when you compare it to the, the Intels of this world. But we, we all seem to like talking about it. We'll try to get through the next few minutes without maybe mentioning the owner of that company, but I doubt we'll be successful. But what, what do you make of the, the actual job losses first? I mean, there seems to be two schools of thought. One is this is just the froth being blown off the top. There was a little bit of overhiring and these businesses are just sort of right-sizing themselves and, and that, that's kind of nothing to see here beyond that. And then there's another school that this is kind of structural. As Donald says, these tech companies were dependent on cheap money, a lot of them, you know, advertising dollars were important to them as well. That's drying up. That there's something more far-reaching going on, and there may be more job losses in the year ahead. Where do you kind of come down on that spectrum? And I know that's a tricky one because nobody ultimately knows the answer just yet. I'm going to be really diplomatic and hedge and say I think it's a bit of both, to be totally fair. And I think both things can be true. And I do absolutely agree this is going to continue into 2023. That has already been intimated by the likes of Intel, which has actually uh, encouraged staff to take three months unpaid leave at the moment, but is also co continuing to work on that restructuring plan. Um, in the case of Intel, though, it's quite interesting because they're also trying to embark on this ambish ambitious strategy for chip design and chip making and trying to be a huge part of the EU's drive to become 
uh, a central hub of chip making in the industry. Um, so I would hope that because of those other agendas that are taking place around Intel, that it, it secures the future for the leaks of plant. The investment that was announced earlier this year in the leaks of plant uh, is going to continue to go ahead as uh, that's part of that strategy. Uh, now, we did miss out on um, getting the, the, the premium. Yeah, the Germans beat us. Yeah, the Germans beat us. Now, I would say in that, I mean, we still kind of came second in that, I would say, just judging by the level of investment. A moral victory. <laughs> yeah, so I think there was a lot of disappointment when Germany got the investment for basically the super fab facility that they're going to build um, for this chip making strategy. And uh, that, again, is part of its European strategy for Intel. But Ireland is still a significant part of that strategy for Intel and the investment going into the fab at leak slip is also um, significant. Uh, like we would have wanted the top level investment, but it's not... It's not the biggest loss when you see that there's still so much interest in what's going on in Ireland and they're trying to retain that manufacturing talent because the manufacturing base here in Ireland of making semiconductors is really important and semiconductors are being put into everything these days. So like it really is such a crucial part of the Ireland's tech industry and one that I don't think gets mentioned enough when you think of like we constantly talk about your Twitters, your Facebooks and your Googles and they're the ones that are facing into like much tougher headwinds, I think, in terms of uh the advertising market really changing entirely. Uh, Google is also looking at a very tough year ahead. It's going to be changing looking at like a cookie-less future and that's all based around uh, increasing regulation on how people are tracked online. And uh, Facebook has also said it's, it's making losses um, because of privacy and tracking and regulation around that kind of becoming more intensive. I was going to ask you, actually, here, here's one for you. I was going to ask you, can Mark Zuckerberg actually survive next year? I mean, uh, you know, the money he's spending on the metaverse is eye-watering. And you're just hearing a few stories that they're all a little bit um, flaky around the edges, maybe, but they're saying that he's coming under some internal pressure. Investors wonder about his strategy, the board maybe as well. I mean, I, it's a genuine question. Can he actually survive in the year ahead as CEO of the company? It's definitely something that's been tabled, but I would say the only person who can decide that Mark Zuckerberg is going to step aside is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, he does hold all the cards there. The voting shares, yeah. Yeah, and no matter what kind of pressure he's under, he does believe in himself a lot. And it's just kind of, this has been a year where the delusion of billionaires has really come to the fore. Even he who must not be named has been part of that as well. And keep, Let's keep this going. We haven't mentioned this person yet. We might get to the end. Their overexposure is not good for them because it does actually showcase how out of touch they can really be. And I mean, of course you'd be out of touch if you've been a billionaire for such a long time. Like they do not live the day-to-day -day lives that the people that they're trying to create products for live. Um, and like they are out of touch. And I think that was really exposed in Zuckerberg this year with his um, hyper-focus on the metaverse, completely rebranding the company to focus on that at the end of 2021. It was something that they hyped up enough and got a lot a lot of people on board with the start of 2022. Personally, I never was on board with the, the prospects of the metaverse. I think it's got great implications for gaming and a niche subset of gaming, I have to stress on top of that as well. Um, but there's talk of this trying to be like an enterprise option and something that people will do for work is, is joining in the metaverse and stuff like that. I really think that's quite an unrealistic prospect. So you don't think I'll be doing this via avatars next year then, no? <laughs> yeah, I don't fancy it. It's like, this works perfectly fine for me. Um, and I think that those, um, that mass did start to slip later on in the year as uh, Facebook was trying to do these kind of landmark announcements and really kind of had not, I still calling them Facebook, they really had not a lot to show for it. Talking about, hey, our avatars have legs when actually those legs were created 
via motion capture. So even their one big announcement, which wasn't that major, it was just given an avatar legs. They didn't even have the tech to underpin <laughs> it. So it just w- it turned into this really embarrassing moment. And you saw the press swing uh, out of favour with the metaverse on top of that. And you're getting a lot less chatter about metaverse since then. Uh, and it just goes to show like how easily the media can be swept up in the hype and then change, change on a dime when it comes to that stuff. But I think um, other things happening in the tech universe are creating a more sceptical media, especially scepticism around these billionaires. Like the metaverse, like it almost sounds like something that should be done on a university campus or something. Like it's proved the technology and then you'd commercialise it, whereas he's trying to prove it and kind of commercialise it at the same time. But isn't there, isn't there something here about like a lot of these things that we know, whether it's from Twitter, which was lost making in its last quarter, drone technology, which has yet to make any money, driverless cars, which is yet to make any money, metaverse, which is yet to make any money, Alexa, which everyone likes to talk about, makes no money. So in other words, there's a gap between viable, profitable businesses and what we actually talk about all the time. I mean, is that is that the real frontiers that we're, we're talking about stuff that isn't necessarily remunerative? It doesn't pay off over the long term. What you're actually talking about is companies that in some cases have reached trillion dollar valuations still trying to scale and be bigger. And there's really only so much that you can scale. So, I mean, the reason why we have the metaverse is because it's just another avenue to try and make money out of people. Let's make it so that people have to buy headsets for all of their staff to try and interact for their workplaces now that they're working remotely. Like, is that really a reasonable ask to put onto companies? Absolutely not. And that that's what a lot of this is. Like, we get fragmentation across tech uh, because they're trying to sell us new things all of the time. They're, they often don't have new breakthrough innovations to sell. So they have to create an idea that, oh, but you need a new phone because this one has a better camera. And, and, and that's the best pitch that they have at the moment. I mean, I was wasting my time buying the new iPhone 12. <laughs> are we on 13? What are we on now? 14, Emmett, 14. 14. Keep yeah. up, keep up. And I mean, one of the yeah. key advertisements for the iPhone 14 in Ireland was, hey, it's green. <laughs> it was like, every single iPhone that ever came out, we were told had a better camera than the previous one. I mean, there's only so much uh, high-spec cameras you can go with, right? I mean, it's uh, it's an extraordinary expansion of one particular product function. Uh, Donald, we'll we leave the tech world for the moment because we have managed not to mention the persons whose initials are EM, which is fantastic. This was one of my objectives in this particular recording. Uh, if you could just round up a few of the other events, and some of them are not business, but I think they're worth mentioning. Um, the Queen's uh, death, obviously, was a huge event in Britain, but globally as well. A huge TV audiences, although kind of smaller than, than maybe had been expected. And then we had the COP27 um, jamboree. Some people thought it was great progress was made. Others thought it was a talking shop, etc., etc. That debate goes on. Just give us your quick take on as somebody who lived in the UK for a good few years, I believe. Uh, the, the death of the Queen, not a business story, but a big global story. Yeah, I don't know, was it a big global story? I mean, the poor woman was bound to die eventually, and, and so she did. Um, interesting, I suppose. There was an element, I think, in all of that, um, a, a kind of moment of calm almost for the, for the UK, which has just been lurching from crisis to crisis in the last couple of years. Yeah, we're not doing the mini budget, by the way, today. We just thought it was too, too much of a car crash to even go back over. In terms of the Queen dying, that's kind of, they had that very brief moment of... And this wasn't brief, Donald, this was 10 days. <laughs> yeah, I, it was 10 days, yeah. And they got a couple of bank holidays out of it. And actually, funnily enough, it... Um, it gave the economy a little bit of a boost in in October, but uh, but nothing major. But I think, yeah, I mean, the focus, the world focus, did shift onto the UK, and lots of people had um, correspondence there for that period. And immediately they lurched into a sort of the most extraordinary um, budget crisis that I've ever seen, where they simply kind of wrote themselves a blank check. 
and demanded that uh, the bond markets pay for it. And the bond markets revolted, the pension markets revolted. And I think that's been quite sobering, funnily enough, after whatever we've had the Brexit stuff rumbling since really 2015 before the referendum. It that suddenly, I think, concentrated minds for British people, that kind of fantasy, um, economic fantasy that, that, that Brexit was really founded on for, for a lot of voters. That simply finally ran out of road, I think, in, in that um, in in that uh, brief Liz Trust premiership. OK, well, the phrase run out of road, uh, Elaine, have, have we run out of road as a species? Um, some of the commentary out of COP27 was pretty grim. Um, end of days type of feel about the whole thing. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, there was the the positive side of it was that we secured or agreed upon uh, this kind of just transition that will make sure that the countries that are going to be most affected by climate change, but uh, in many, many ways have contributed the least to the things that are causing these impacts and um, that there's going to be a loss and damage fund to support them. And that was actually a success a success of the EU's negotiation power and it was actually that negotiation was led by Eamon Ryan our own uh, uh, minister so uh, there was those positives to come out of it but really when you look at what uh, the environmentalists uh, have said about COP27 it's not that encouraging Um, it's still a struggle to basically unpick ourselves from our reliance on fossil fuel and that has not been helped by a year in which Russia has invaded Ukraine and we've realised that even if we wanted to, for the reasons of that war and the sanctions being imposed in Russia, to move away from fossil fuels and reliance on oil and gas quickly, it's not doable even in that case. So so when you look at our long-term goals for climate action, when that was turned into kind of a short-term goal to try and punish Russia, it was revealed to be something that's quite quite difficult to do. And we're even seeing now because of that, um, the UAE is upping its oil production to try and support uh, Europe and and kind of fulfil the role that Russia has been playing for Europe in terms of providing oil. And that's obviously got terrible implications for our long-term climate goals. So I think people are just getting a bit despondent about this situation. I mean, these, these are very, very long-term in terms of the way governments and stuff think issues and in the last couple of years we've had some short-term crises to contend with on top of of these decisions but we are approaching the timeline where these issues aren't going to be long-term anymore they're going to be feel very immediate and we're going to be kicking ourselves for keep continuing to kick the can down the road the way we've been doing yeah no i, th- I think that's a, a very reasonable point unfortunately time is against us so i'm going to give the last word to donald we we um, can't get the world cup in because it's ongoing as we record, and we don't know the winner at the time of recording, but come on, Argentina. <laughs> but maybe France will get there. Donald, the last one is Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, as we record this podcast, he has been charged with counts of fraud and illegal uh, party political donations as well, and also a conspiracy. He's been extradited to the US. And this sort of speaks to us about a wider issue of cryptocurrencies. It has had a dreadful year I think even people who are very much um, cheerleaders for this form of digital money would would agree. Some people say, look, this is a particular company. He's obviously got a particular personality type that the media are interested in. But the actual currencies are still an alternative. The technology, blockchain and so on is still intact. How do you read what has happened to this whole area in 2022? Do you think Sam Bankman-Fried's travails are just a thing on their own? Or do you think they... Talk to us a little bit more about cryptocurrencies as an industry. Well, I suppose you can't, uh, tempting as it might be, uh, you know, uh, tar everyone with the same particular brush. And obviously, there's 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 now a criminal investigation in that case. But I mean, like, I'm deeply skeptical about anything to do with cryptocurrencies. I, I don't 
I don't see any kind of economic rationale. There's, they, you know, when they came out initially, they were talked about as potentially as, you know, a, a means of exchange, cross-border exchange. It was very fast and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that kind of morphed into a hedge against deflation and then hedged into a, uh, or morphed into a hedge against inflation. And, you know, whatever you're having yourself, somebody says that crypto is the answer to, um, there's nothing that I can see that suggests value anywhere. People can't see you, Donald, but you're very, very disapprovingly shaking your head here. I think a lot of money sort of poured into that kind of speculation during 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 COVID in particular. And that had its own kind of you know self-fulfilling d- d- dynamic. The more money went in, the more the valuations went up, the more the money went in. People, I think a lot of young men were watching their friends' wallets increase in, in uh, Maria value um, and, and feeling left out. And, you know, there is... Nothing that will make you act more stupid than seeing your neighbour get rich, famously. Um, Greater fool theory, essentially, is what you're saying. Um, Elaine, are you are you on the same script as Donal, or do you do you take a slightly wider view? Oh God, yeah, no, I do think this industry is kind of propped up by the people who stand to benefit the most if it does take off. But there's no reason why anyone would go for it. To be honest with you, it's so volatile, so unstable, and. I mean, FTX was just one example of the crypto industry really showing uh, its failings. So Voyager Digital, which was a crypto lender, filed for bankruptcy um, and a former investment manager filed a lawsuit against it, accusing it of being a Ponzi scheme. And that's what a lot of these um, crypto businesses are, are accused of being. And Terra USD, which was meant to be a stable coin. So that was meant to be a cryptocurrency pegged to the dollar using an algorithm to keep it stable. That collapsed. It wasn't uh, kept stable by its algorithm. It crashed in May and it was estimated that it wiped about $500 billion off the crypto market. So all of these things, including FTX, have kind of um, validated a lot of the concerns around the crypto industry that people have had. And and some people have been deeply affected by this, apparently losing their life savings. Um, And they're the ones who will suffer the most. But some people will come out of this unscathed because they were the big players. And what you're seeing is the appetite for regulation. So if cryptocurrency or indeed the underpinning technologies of blockchain, which have a lot of uh, solid use cases, but there's energy implications to those as well. The mining, yeah. uh, Just the energy of uh, solving complex computational problems that that is required for these technologies, uh, that's going to be a huge concern going forward if we decide to adopt this for anything. Um, And I think that's really come to the fore. And this has been a year that has shown the absolute need for regulation in this industry because while it is a fiction for a lot of us and it's something that you wouldn't get involved in and be very sceptical of, people are getting involved and are getting hurt by what's going on there. And the EU is working on its mark- markets and crypto assets uh, framework called the MICA framework for short. Um, and But also, I think the central bank wrote a blog post recently where it completely wrote off cryptocurrency as, as an idea as well. Yeah, of course, Levon Delane has had yeah. some, um, some harsh words to say about the crypto industry as well. So that I think uh, EU regulation is probably going to, um, nicks a lot of uh, the work going on there as well. Unfortunately, we won't be taking up any more computational power because we have to end our conversation here. Thank you very much to Donal and Elaine. We have managed not to mention the owner of Twitter. Um, it's definitely going to be a very important figure, though, in 2023. Thank you for such a wide variety of subjects that you've tackled from the World Cup to the Queen to cryptocurrencies to Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, and also, of course, COVID and Strep A and the airport and all the rest of it. Thank you both to Donal and Elaine. I think you went well past the point of duty in getting to so many topics. We'll see you again next year and enjoy your Christmas. Enjoy the energy bills and the cold. Well, we'll be into 2023 before you know it. And thank you very much for taking part. Thanks, Will. Thank you.
Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Music